0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Pauli, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Professor Rory Finnan about his new book, Blood of Others, Stalin's Crimean Atrocity and the Poetics of Solidarity. Rory Finnan is a professor of Ukrainian studies at the University of Cambridge. His primary research interest is the interplay of literature and national identity in Ukraine. He also studies Soviet-Russian dissident literature, Turkish nationalist literature, and Crimean Tatar literature. His broader interests include solidarity studies, nationalism theory, human rights discourse, and problems of cultural memory in the region of the Black Sea. Hi Rory, welcome to the show.
1: Hi Matt, great great to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: Oh, it's such my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this forever. So, Rory, I thought we might begin uh, with um, an opportunity really for you to tell us a bit about how you got into Ukrainian studies, your book, and frankly, your broader work is even bigger than that. But this channel is a channel in Ukrainian studies, so I'm sure our listeners would be interested in your own scholarly journey.
1: Thanks, Matt. Well, it's again really a pleasure and an honor to be on with you. I uh, really admire your work and um, particularly uh, your leadership here on the channel. My my um, interest in Ukraine really was, I suppose, accidental. In 1995, I joined the U.S. Peace Corps. I was originally supposed to go to Fiji. And at the last minute, uh, they invited me to go to Ukraine. And I lived and worked there in a village school for uh, about three years. And, um, it really changed my life and after i came home started working um, i began to feel like my prior ignorance of ukraine needed to be addressed so i uh, pursued graduate study at Columbia and was really supported there in my interest in ukraine so i was able to scratch that itch of that prior ignorance to learn more about it, the country's diversity its rich history, there's so much about Ukraine. And I'm sure every listener uh, to this podcast understands there's so much that surprises you about Ukraine. The moment you uh, think you have some place in Ukraine figured out, it always surprises. So it's been remarkable to be able to uh, develop a career in Ukrainian studies. It's been a privilege. I've learned so much from our, our partners and colleagues in Ukraine and around the world.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, uh, your work, many, much more than others, I think speaks to the richness of what is Ukraine. I mean, uh, it's absolutely fascinating, this book, uh, and the way it, you get at the sort of um, multiple ethnic groups that certainly inhabit the Crimean Peninsula of Ukraine, but frankly, Ukraine beyond Crimea as well. So I wonder if you might tell us about how you came up with the idea of writing this book and what particular challenges you had in uh, completing it.
1: Well, I suppose the book began in a sense back during those Peace Corps days. I have lovely dear friends um, who once gave me a book of poetry by a man named Mykola Rudenko. And I received this volume probably about a year, year and a half into my service in Ukraine. So I could make out some poems. Rudenko is sometimes widely understood as a so-called programmatic um, Ukrainian poetry, someone who began his career as a, an official writer, but had um, a real transformation after Khrushchev's so-called secret speech in 1956. So his poetry is fairly straightforward, except one poem in particular, I could never really understand at all. And it was called Tatarin. And I asked my friends who happened to be, uh, Rudenko's brother-in-law and sister-in-law, uh, more about this Tatarin. Um, uh, I learned from Rudenko's, uh, wife, uh, Rudenko had passed away by the time I was in Ukraine, but Raisio Rudenko herself, a human rights activist, told me this was a Crimean Tatar that Rudenko had in mind, that um, Crimean Tatars, there was a, a small but um, evident community in the region of Donbass, in the Donatico Oblast, where Rudenko came from. And this is a poem about a Crimean Tatar who's beaten by uh, Rudenko's uh, fellow vi- villagers. And it's a poem that confronts this cognitive dissidence of, of how one can love one's neighbor, and also be shocked by the evil of their violence toward this innocent man, this innocent Crimean Tatar. And ever since then, probably from 1996 or so, I would occasionally, in the course of reading a variety of works in Ukrainian, Russian, and then later Turkish, I would see these references to Crimean Tatars, and in particular, their deportation in 1944, which was a horrific event. Um, Very tragically, we're seeing uh, echoes of this deportation now in Russian occupation in today's Ukraine. And so I wanted to make sense of all these different references that I had encountered in libraries, archives. I wasn't looking for them. They kind of, I suppose, were looking for me. I put them together and then tried to think through uh, their purpose. And, and for someone who studies literature, this is something like uh, Holy Grail, right? This notion of what culture and what literature does in the world, you know, can we show its demonstrable impact in some way? And all of these poems really try to agitate in the reader a sense of empathy, but also uh, an impetus to social action. And so I wanted to explore a little bit more how literature and art can do that. This became a case study that uh, enveloped me over the course of a long time. Wow and
0: can i Can I interject then? So you hadn't learned uh, Crimean Tatar or Turkish prior to the genesis of this project, or had you
1: done so? I already? I started to think about the history of Ukraine being provoked by people like uh, Umelian Pritzak, the great Harvard professor, uh, Ahad Anhel Krimsky, and others that I'd encounter in the course of my study at Columbia. And they often frame the study of Ukraine with this Black Sea perspective, or what Mikhail Hrushevsky once called a Black Sea orientation. And I felt myself that that was lacking. My own travels around Ukraine, particularly in the South and East, along the Azov Sea, on the Crimean Peninsula in the 1990s, and then, you know, many times subsequently afterward, it just felt like the Black Sea was looked at as a a source of division rather than a source of cohesion. And I was encountering constantly these elements in the landscape, cultural, political landscape, that pointed to Ukraine embedded in this broader regional context. And so I wanted to explore that myself. And in 2005, um, I traveled to uh, Turkey, lived there for a year or so in the course of my doctoral studies to try to acquire Turkish. And then in these visits to Ankara, Istanbul, uh, even places like Chandler, Chandler Urfa, elsewhere in the country, I would pop into libraries and just look to see if there is much of a reference to Crimean Tatar culture, what's often called Kurum Turkleri, uh, the Crimean Turks, Crimean uh, Turk Tatar culture. So it was then that I tried to study more Crimean Tatar, which was a, a challenge, but it was a really urgent purpose for me after the annexation in 2014, because prior to this point, I had been reading poems in Russian, Ukrainian, and Turkish about the Crimean Tatars, but I wasn't really reading much of their own literature and culture in their language. And it was a big lacuna that I that I wanted to address. And so after that point, I did what I could to learn how to to read Crimean Tatar to try to speak it. Um, but then of course, as you know, Matt, once you start studying a language and you think, well, I can make my way through a few poems, but you you also need to read. Um, the vast corpora in Crimean Tatar about their own literature and culture. So that that took some time. So it was it was something of a a progressive development, really, um, a constant discovery. And frankly, there was a lot in the way of a book like this because I myself hadn't seen as much in contemporary Ukrainian studies that tried to reframe Ukraine and place it in a broader Black Sea context to look at these exchanges between. Ukrainians, Crimean Tatars, Turks, and Russians as well. Um, so there were some uh, weeds to to navigate through, uh, but I I think I eventually got there at least in some some respect. Yeah! Wow, that's fascinating to me. I mean,
0: uh, I think it's such a healthy reminder of the way in which the Black Sea region has been thought as an intimate part of Ukrainian history and Ukrainian identity, and yet we've sort of lost that thread and certainly it re- requires a particular skill set which you're brave enough to take on <laughs> and I still haven't so I'm I'm deeply admiring um so let's let's talk about the 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 book it, itself and we might as well begin at the beginning i mean the subtitle certainly references a, a very tragic historical event that if anybody knows anything about Crimean history they'll know something about but but of course the history of Crimean Tatar, uh, Russian, Ukrainian, and Turkish interaction um, and exchange uh, precedes all of that. Um, we won't go back into the, 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 the deep depths of history, but uh, I, I thought I'd begin where you sort of began, that is um, with a sort of literary history of the Russian colonial description of, of crimea even if it isn't explicitly acknowledged as such so i mean I, I suppose for for many readers um or many listeners and and leaders readers of the literature that you reference it shouldn't be surprising that russian czarist era literature about crimea was colonialist and yet readers of this literature, I think, are often guilty of glossing over this fact. We're just entranced by um, the sort of descriptive detail that we're uh, exposed through through the writings of people like Alexander Pushkin. So since Pushkin is is so well known and, and you center this first chapter really around Pushkin, um, I, I thought I'd ask you to maybe comment specifically on um, Bakhtisaraisky-Fontan and what is particularly revealing about it, um, if we examine it as a piece of colonialist literature in conversation with Ottoman and Tatar literary responses, right? Um, So it is the sort of touchstone that um, anti-colonialist literature has to engage and then well, I'll leave it there and then maybe yeah. I'll
1: follow up. Yeah. Yeah, The P- Pushkin's legacy here, here is fascinating. And obviously for our field uh, of Ukrainian studies, this is very, very evident and, and very clear that the history of, of parts of Ukraine, and if not the entirety of Ukraine, is a history of, of settler colonialism. Uh, and we've, perhaps in Slavic studies, thinking more generally about uh the discipline and the kind of work that needs to be done to decolonize it properly. The first thing is acknowledgement, acknowledgement that uh, Russia was an expansionist and is an expansionist land empire. And it employed repeatedly various brutal processes and projects of settler colonialism. And probably the most central in the artistic imagination in the Russian empire was the settler colonialism of Crimea and Pushkin is extremely influential and instrumental in this process. Now, when one studies, let's say cultural reflections, literary responses to settler colonialism, it's often thought that the upshot of this literature and culture is to erase the native, it's to look past the native, and and that's to an extent true. But if we're thinking about this as a process, what we see is very strange and paradoxical. And the process is, at first, settler colonialist literature, like Pushkin's Bakshasaraysky Fantan, but not only, we can see it in his Kafkaski Plenik as well in the context of the Caucasus. It starts first by making this really tight connection between, in this case, Crimean Tatar culture and uh, Crimean territory. But in the course of these instrumental texts, what we see is a severing, a breakage of this relationship. So we're witness to a kind of of process um, by which then the territory becomes fetishized. And you can see that over the course of the 19th century with respect to Russian literature about Crimea, it becomes a paradise. It's a floating island in the Black Sea, a jewel in the imperial crown. But it starts first by making this rather romantic connection to the Crimean Tatars and particular, particularly to this... Eastern Orientalist depiction of the Crimean Tatar Khanate. So it's worth our listeners just recalling the centuries of the rule of the Crimean Tatar Khanate, not only on the peninsula itself, but also in the steplands of Southern Ukraine. And in fact, if one looks at a map that would come out from the Institute of the Study of War today, uh, BBC, CNN, we'll see that the, the front right now is more or less tracing the northern reaches of what was once the Crimean Tatar Khanid. So Pushkin centers Bakshasaraysky Fountain on the Crimean Tatar Khan. Yes, it's a love triangle, it's setting in the harem, so um, it's sensationalized in a certain sense, so it was his most popular poem. But We see first this establishment of a connection between Crimean territory and Tatar culture and that it is broken. And after it is broken, um, as I mentioned, throughout the 19th century, you see this elevation of these these, uh, paradise visions of Crimea. And then you see this receding into the distance, if not complete erasure of Crimean Tatars themselves, which is, of course thought of often, in the context of Slavic studies, as some reflection of reality, when of course it wasn't that at all. So in the middle of the 19th century, somewhere between 75 to 80% of Crimea's population was Crimean-Tatar. It is only after the Crimean War, when the Tsar pledges to erase them, to cleanse them is the word he uses, in fact, from the Crimean Peninsula, that we see a precipitous decline in Crimean Tatar uh, populations and communities. So culturally, we see right from the start that the Crimean Tatars get erased and should be erased. But somehow in our cultural imagination, it becomes thought that uh, Crimea is somehow Russian. And that is a myth that has persisted for a very long time. We see its legacy now. I think this perception is extremely inaccurate. But it has been something that Russian writers, in particular Soviet writers of different colors and backgrounds, have um, invested a lot of effort in, in pursuing and promoting. Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah. I can't tell you
0: how many times I've had these sorts of conversations with um, with members of the public who are just entirely ignorant of the um, pre-Russian colonial Existence of Crimea and uh, the way in which Crimean Tatars were erased by a Tsarist uh, occupying colonialist uh, regime. So, I, I mean, I guess your your response prompts me to ask a question that I hadn't really thought of. But in what way do you get a sense of your reading of this literature of of um, Oh, maybe I'll rephrase it. How, how does Russian, a Russian sense of Crimea, how does it co-opt aspects of ta- Tatar culture, Tatar architecture, um, Tatar even um, sort of uh, linguistic remnants um, and, and sort of claim them as Russian? Or do you, do you believe that's going on?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and here Pushkin is right at the center of things again, but he's not necessarily to blame. That is, the poem is so Bakshasararsky Fontan we're speaking about once more, it's so popular, it's so widely read, it becomes so canonical that the Khan Sarai in Bakshasarai, so the Khan's palace, um, becomes a major tourist site um, throughout the Soviet period. It's worth remembering that after the deportation of the Crimean Tatars in 1944, the Soviet regime endeavored to remap the entire peninsula, and they did it almost overnight. So they changed thousands of Crimean Tatar names for towns and villages throughout the peninsula. Often they had ancient meaning, they had connection to uh, the type of industry, uh, perhaps a, a particular farm or landowner. Um, sometimes they were named after families, etc. There was a rich toponymical, toponymical um, vocabulary, as it were, for Crimea, and that was changed overnight. And some have said that uh, i wouldn't have re- retained its name were it not for, for Pushkin installing a vision, this Orientalist vision of Crimea in the picture. But it's important for us to remember that in culture, what what's most important is that this is a narrative. It's a it's a story that's presented, and the plot of the story involves a Russian elevation over this Crimean Tatar past. So the Hansarai becomes a museum. And it becomes a museum because a Russian writer turns it into something of value. And if it weren't for that uh, transaction on the part of Pushkin, then it wouldn't have much value in that colonial imagination. But because Pushkin touched it, endowed it with um, florid description, it becomes um, attached to in some respects, forms of Russian culture, and then is, is, uh, again, a place that's touristed, visited, written about. And that's the paradox of Bakshasarovsky Fontan. Because it is a vibrant piece of literature, because, in fact, it installs a vision of the Crimean Tatar past somewhere um, in the field of vision, it has value even for Crimean Tatars who write back and try to revisit and revise these images of the Crimean Tatar Hanit and reinvigorate them, gesture to a possible future. Ukrainians do the same thing in literature. But for Russians, uh, it's pretty clear that the value of this Khansarai remains in the past. It becomes something of an exhi- exhibition or exhibit in a, in a museum. And that's, uh, that's its only worth. Fascinating.
0: Well, let's move on uh, away, I suppose, from the Russian colonial gaze and uh, to Crimean Tatar writers. So uh, maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, you might be able to say a little something about who uh, Ismail Gasparinsky uh, Gasparinsky is. uh, and how a new generation of Tatar poets and intellectuals who followed him um, began to sort of uh, contest or alter uh, or alter view of, of Russian colonization of Crimea um, in response to what Gassparinsky, Was doing? How did they sort of accomplish, as you put it, a re Tatarization of Crimea at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century?
1: Thanks for this question, Matt, because it's important that we call to mind Gasprinsky or Gasparale and his Turkic form of his surname. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Gasprinsky or Gasparale, both, I think, are really interchangeable in discussions about him and his legacy. It's important that we remember him because. He, in fact, has an outside influence on Muslim culture more broadly at a very pivotal time. So, first of all, he was a, a very talented writer. So we often think of him as the civic activist and editor of the Terjuman or Perevodchik, the uh, interpreter newspaper that was published out of Bakshasarai. Um, So one thinks of him as a uh, a gatherer of different forms of information, literary production, etc. But he himself was a really talented writer. He, in fact, wrote something of a utopian novel about uh, this confluence and intersection between Christian and Muslim cultures in a novel called *The Mullah Abbas*. And it has a form of a travelogue, but it's a really innovative novel that's trying to tackle this question of how, in fact, Muslim tradition can maintain and sustain itself uh, alongside notions of Western technological progress. He was a very unique voice in talking about these types of things. We could read him today and and learn a lot. So he also was invested in um, standardizing a language that could be used by the Muslim uh, communities uh, across, across the world. And he was centering all of this activity with these great geopolitical, geocultural aspirations in Sleepy Bakshasarai, which is, is quite a feat. But he's a canny player. That is, he understands Russian imperial thinking. He's built to work within that imperial frame. He doesn't want to break it. Mm-hmm. And so in many respects, the generation that come after him, the Yeni Tataralar, the Young Turks, they have no patience for Russian imperialism, they do want to destroy it. They take a more radical posture, but that radical posture, as is so often the case with revolutionary mo- movements, they depend on trailblazers like Gasparale, who was a little more strategic, sometimes ambivalent in his approach to both the Russian and Ottoman political spaces. So you can see this intergenerational connection and conflict in the story of Gasparale and his and his followers, and then those who part from him. So I would say, really, in the first decades of the 20th century, we start seeing Crimean-Tatar literature that is a little no-holds-barred with respect to Russian imperialism and settler colonialism itself. So recall, as I mentioned before, that in the middle of the 19th century after the Crimean War, something like 75 to 80% of the peninsula's population was Crimean-Tatar. By the turn of the century, it's roughly 25 and So there are writers like Hassan Chergev, who writes a really remarkable piece of literature called Listen to What the Dead Man Says, in which his protagonist uh, rises from the dead and walks around Crimea of the early years of the 20th century and is so shocked by what he sees. His home is gone. The people have become kind of imperial slaves. They don't think for themselves. And so he goes back to the cemetery buries himself back into the earth because he's so shocked by what he sees. But in the process, this protagonist encounters Russians who call him Tatar scum, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there are moments of really vivid depiction of this colonial relationship between the colonizer and the colonized, and a sense that there will be a political opening soon where the Crimean Tatars themselves will have to act um, in response to the legacy of the, of this imperial repression.
0: All right. Well, how do Ukrainians then engage in this sort of anti-colonial discourse begun or accelerated by the Young Turks? Right. How? How? I mean, much of your book is really about the solidarity between these different communities in the Crimean Peninsula, and as I say beyond. So why do you call their writings solidary reflection? Uh, and how do they take inspiration, I suppose, by this attempt to re-tatarize
1: Crimea and um, and reflect on that? Thanks for that question, because it brings up two of my my favorite literary figures to, to talk about, and that is Lesya Ukrainka and Mikhail Kotyubinsky. So first to understand just how important these works are in reframing the Ukrainian relationship to the Crimean Tatars we have to take a step back and first of all confront currents of cultural memory that still exist today and, and persist right now in, in 2023 that is antagonism between Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars largely based on the rhetoric of the Cossack Tume that often frame Crimean Tatars as raiders taking innocent families for the slave markets in Istanbul. And then conversely, in Crimean Tatar culture, there are currents of cultural memory in which Ukrainians are perpetrators themselves. So they uh, participate in the dismantling of the Crimean Tatar Khanate at the end of the 18th century. Some of them participate in this wave of NKVD intervention in the context of the deportation of 1944. So a lot of this literature that I'm referencing from the Ukrainian side is overcoming these these currents of cultural memory that have Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars posed as some kind of enemies. So this literature does a lot of heavy lifting to change that and reframe it entirely. And the first person who really takes this on in ways that I think even now, Matt, even now, 2023, we need to read. Mm -hmm. And that's so often the case when you talk about Lesya Ukrainka. She's so ahead of the game She's decades, even a century out with ideas, formulations that we now can relate to if we're opening opening ourselves up to them. So the work that I write about in the book is called Nadmorem, Along the Sea or at the Seaside. And you mentioned the the question of the solidary reflection. This is a fascinating story of an uh, anonymous Ukrainian narrator who's a woman vacationing In Crimea. And so she's right away Ukrainka playing with these notions of the Crimean paradise that we see in in imperial literature at this time. But she also writes about these rather uh, unattractive and um, chauvinistic tourists from Moscow and St. Petersburg who are also vacationing in Yalta and, and places like it. And she doesn't like them at all. And she realizes he has a major, almost uh, philosophical, ontological, cultural difference with them, but she can't put her finger on it until there's a moment in which a young Crimean Tatar boy who's tasked with, uh, with painting a bridge, painting a road, um, walks by the narrator and this uh, friend of hers, a debutante from Moscow, and this brush of paint that the boy has in his hand almost brushes against uh, the, the Muscovite debutante. And she shouts at him, calls him a Muzhlan, a dolt or idiot. And he turns back and looks at her. And that's when the Ukrainian anonymous narrator notices something familiar in the gaze he projects at the Moscow debut- debutante. And so she relates to this gaze and then later realizes what she calls the temny polya, this, this dark gaze, is one that she shares as well. So it's a very, very unique story in which a female narrator identifies through the look of a colonized subject that she herself is colonized to, doubly colonized in a sense if we take into account the, the, the gender context here. Mm-hmm. Then we have Mikhail Kotsubinsky, who writes an entire story, uh, and, and a whole slew of stories rather, about Crimean Tatar culture without including Ukrainians in them at all. So he's using the Ukrainian language to represent... Crimean Tatar life. And along the way, he's making really fascinating analogies with Ukrainian culture without saying it explicitly. And that's where the importance of reading here and and understanding these intertextual cues is so so important for us to, to call attention to. So those works and works like it, and we can talk about others, particularly over the course of the 20th century, they begin to show Ukrainian characters, Ukrainian protagonists, who relate to the Crimean Tatars, not in a simplistic way, not by simply pointing out that they've been equally victimized, but they actually showcase moments of seeing in which um, the Ukrainian view becomes the Crimean Tatar view and the Crimean Tatar view becomes the Ukrainian view. That is something that has evolved over the course of the 20th century and brings us to today, where I think this rhetoric and and, uh, literary contemplation about solidarity has become... Um, extremely sophisticated.
0: Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll definitely have time at the end to talk about what's going on, uh, today. It's hard not to see all along the way in your book, constant echoes of, um, of what we see present today. I thought we might jump maybe to the post-revolutionary Period. I mean, I'm fascinated by what you write about that is attempts during the revolutionary Civil War years uh, to develop linkages between the Ukrainian national movement and the Crimean Tatar national movement. But both, you know, we can, kind of, as a historian, I suppose it's difficult to say these end in utter defeat. Um, although, uh, of course, the Soviet um, uh, occupation, Soviet governance uh, of this region is real. There's also an interesting discussion that I'm sure the listeners will be interested in about um ideas of region, right? Uh where is what is Crimea's place within the larger Black Sea region, which is where we began our conversation in many ways. But I am obviously interested in the era of wrote Something about this, so <laughs> <Yes>. so I <laughs> yes, like to you know. Did. Yeah, no more. All <laughs> <lie> on, yeah. <laughs> no more. about all Yeah, uh, no more about. I mean, I, I I I don't mean to in any way center myself, but I remember going to Simferopol um, way back in the early 2000s and going to this Crimean Tatar library and looking at works from the era of Kordanazatia in in Crimea and just. um flabbergasted by what was there. So I I was really intrigued um, by your strong emphasis, which I wholeheartedly agree with that, Of course, Soviet policy, the Soviet policy of Kordonizatsia emphasized the Tatar essence of Crimea, but it also promoted what you call an entanglement of national cultures. And so I'm worried uh, as a historian, I suppose, about, not worried, but um, uh, I remark with lament on the end of this um, era. And I'm interested in commentary from you about what happens at the end, what is this discursive cleansing that you reference? It seems to me not just a discursive cleansing of literature about Crimea and about Crimean Tatars or by Crimean Tatars and in Crimean Tatar, but also a sort of discursive cleansing of this solidary uh, reflection between Tatars and Ukrainians. So am I reading that right?
1: Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think, um, as you know, from your research, which I think we should center uh, a little bit of our conversation on yours, because there's a lot about koordinizatia that still needs to be done, a lot of research still to be done. And I think the conventional presentation of koordinizatia, even when it is discussed in the context of, let's say, Soviet studies, and I would say it's it's very poorly discussed um, and not discussed enough. But when we do discuss it, it, it's presented as a program in which the Soviet state supports various national cultures to promote themselves, to f- start schools uh, that are teaching, of course, the uh, the language uh, of the national group. But we're often not looking at the ways in which Koordinizatia more generally and even more specifically allowed... In this case, uh, that's at the center of the book, Ukrainian culture to support Crimean Tatar, Koronizatsiya or Tatarizatsiya, and vice versa. So mm-hmm. the very project of promoting one's national culture could lead another national culture to, to benefit. And so I write a bit about how Ukrainizatsiya assists the project of Tatarizatsiya through the film Alim. So Alim is a remarkable film that's recently been restored by the great team at the Dovzhenko Center in Kyiv. Um, it's uh, a gorgeous film, an action film really, directed by Hiorhi Tassin in his debut. And it's based on this play by the Crimean Tatar playwright Umar Ipchi. Alim himself is kind of like a Crimean Tatar Robin Hood. So a figure from the imperial period who robbed, robbed the rich and, and, and gave to the poor, as it were. So Ipchi writes a, a very popular play in um, the early decades of the 20th century about this figure. And it becomes the basis for a film made by Vufku. So we have, again, bureaucratic funds from Soviet Ukraine powering the production of a film that's in many respects reminding Soviet viewers, of the Tatar inheritance and heroizing one of the figures who um, fought on behalf of the Crimean Tatar people, and not only the Crimean Tatar people, as we see in the film. Alim is, of course, a good class warrior and defends the rights of um, the poor, no matter what their ethnicity or background. But it's this entanglement that that fascinated me, how this particular work could be funded through ukrainizatia, but... Promote Crimean Tatar culture when they were administratively separate. And we see something comparable in one of these remarkable works of great poignancy and emotionality by um, Ostap Vishnya, the the, the prominent humorist, probably the most widely read Ukrainian writer of the early Soviet period, someone who rivaled only uh, Shevchenko and Lenin, it was said. But he writes um, in the midst of all these anecdotes and and, and funny vignettes, what he called Usmishki, he writes a very poignant and powerful piece about the Russian imperial colonization of Crimea. And he describes it using, in fact, um, the work of a Russian historian of the mid to late 19th century, Markov. He uses language of ethnic cleansing, of Um, a scorched earth campaign, he asks questions like, did the Russian empire help the Crimean Tatar people? And he provides an answer, no, not at all. So there's a real confrontation with the colonial legacy that Vishnia provides as well. And that is, again, coming from Soviet Ukraine, powered through um, Soviet funds of Ukraine that is speaking to the Crimean Tatar inheritance. So there's a lot of this type of entanglement that I feel in the field of Soviet studies we could address if we're able to look comparatively across languages to see how these different projects um, intersected. And we can see it very often in uh, tracking the movements of Ukrainian writers from different literary organizations to places like Minsk Mm -hmm. and how they worked uh, with Belarusian literary organizations and promoted um, uh, their works together collaboratively. There's a lot of that kind of study Uh, The book only focuses here on the Ukrainian Crimean-Tatar case, but I think it's an illustrative one. Absolutely.
0: Well, uh, then we come to the war years um, and to the tragic 1944 deportation of the Crimean-Tatars down to the last woman and child. And, you know, uh, I think we're all... um, as readers, wanting to dwell on that. But we're also, I think, obligated to move beyond and to really um, turn to your excellent discussion of the way in which this event begins to be addressed or remembered, not just by Crimean Tatars who are not only, of course, remembering, they're experiencing it and living it. Um, it is not really ever in the past, right? But how do Russian and Ukrainian writers, um, and frankly, their audiences to the extent, and you can talk about the audience if you like, <laughs> of, of the works that are circulated, um, how do they process guilt about the deportation of the Crimean Tatar people. And um, and why do you think this has really, frankly, been such an understudied aspect of... I mean, historians have so much to learn, I think, from uh, literary scholars. Um, uh, So... It was revealing to me, and you—you make a claim here and elsewhere in the book that there—that literature is a place. Of course, we should understand. Well, I'll make you let you make the claim for your own discipline, but that literature is a is a place that we should turn to. Uh, On its own terms, we should understand the literature, but we should understand literature certainly as a a way of understanding the historical moment as well. So the first question is, again, about processing guilt.
1: Um, Right. And that's a really important question and something that I, I came to after some time trying to think about. All of these works synthetically, and I completely agree, you know, when we talk about the, the word interdisciplinarity, we can all learn a lot from each other um, and across um, different fields, and, and and that's something we need to do on a, on a daily basis. Um, it, first, I would say, in the context of, let's say, Soviet history, when we talk about so-called dissent or dissidence, and these are words that are controversial in their own right, um, I reference one of my heroes, Petro Hirhorenko, who doesn't like the term at all and prefers terms like inakodumsi, other thinkers. So people who 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 um, did not want to cede the center to Soviet authorities that believed in fact that they spoke from a position of authority vis-a-vis the Soviet project. So if we look at the history of, of dissidents, we tend to see a predominant focus in my opinion on political dissent. So we look at, for instance, the outstanding work of uh, Natalia Gorbanevsky and the Chronicle of Current Events, for instance. It's very Mm -hmm. clinical, almost antiseptic portrayal of events that occur in the Soviet Union in which people are arrested, when they're arrested, where they're being tried, where they're being held. This is really important literature, but it only comes after literary works and particularly poetry is circulating in some vidav in the Ukrainian or Samizdat contexts. And I wanted to focus on first why poetry was important and how it really clears away for what Kant call, calls this knowledge how, this productive um, use of the imagination to, to, to envision new communities, new contexts in which ideas can circulate in fresh ways. I argue that it's poetry that makes all of this possible, and that without that poetry initially, um, we wouldn't have seen, I think, the same kind of distribution of uh, so called traditional political Samizdat texts. Right. So, when it comes to the presentation of the Crimean Tatar deportation, and others like it, but the Crimean Tatar deportation becomes a really central event in a lot of this literature because the Crimean Tatars are themselves so prominent in dissident circles. It is the case, and Gorbanaevsky is very clear about this, that the Chronicle of Current Events was actually modeled after the, the so-called bulletins of the Crimean Tatar people. So after the Crimean Tatars are deported in 1944, they are displaced in predominantly Central Asia, Uzbekistan, some in uh, Siberia, but mostly in Central Asia. And immediately, Even though they encounter constant obstacles, they're in special settlement camps, they're not allowed to leave for many years, and they're forbidden to write and even uh, teach the Crimean Tatar language, they nonetheless organize. And they begin to petition elites in Moscow in particular, and they begin to represent how, in fact, Soviet authorities are arresting Crimean Tatars, are treating them poorly in a variety of ways, and they document this in a very clinical style, which is exactly the way that the Chronicle of Current Events presented these things to. There are also so-called initiative groups that were formed by the Crimean Tatars, and we shouldn't forget the first Soviet NGO is an initiative group um, for um, the defense of human rights. So the Crimean Tatars' model action and particularly logistical practice that other Soviet dissidents imitate. Going back to this term discursive cleansing that I use, there's a kind of discursive cleansing even in our own scholarship of the legacy of the Crimean Tatars in this respect. But back to this uh, this writing that really comes out in around 1959 or so. Um, the emblematic text in this respect is one I spent some time discussing is called Crimean Strolls by a Kharkiv Russian language poet named Boris Chichibabin. Now, Chichibabin had served on the Transcaucasian front in the Second World War. He had nothing to do with the deportation of the Crimean Tatars. But when he returned to Crimea after being in prison, in fact, for writing some verse at Kharkiv University that uh, rubbed authorities the wrong way. He goes to Crimea to recover from this time in the Gulag and walks around and is shocked to see this place that was so overcome with Tatar culture, Tatar families, the Tatar language, Crimean Tatar language. He sees it's gone, and he's shocked by this and writes this poem, Crimean Strolls, which he then read in countless literary gatherings Uh, across the Soviet Union, in Moscow, Kiev, Kharkiv. And we have accounts of audience members being shocked by what he said, because the Crimean-Tatar deportation was very poorly known in Soviet society. Uh, We can see echoes of this today, this inability to discuss the horrors that are unfolding right in front of your eyes. Um, Contemporary Russian society is struggling with this with respect to Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. So Chichababin's experiences reading this poem, and he was an exceptional performer, Matt. He was really captivating, highly charismatic, never looked down at notes, he seemed to be gripped by this passion, and people responded to him even when they were you know sitting in a literary reading for hours. He would come on the stage and, and he would keep, have hold them wrapped in attention, <laughs> so there are lot of cases of people reflecting on his reading of this particular poem. And then the poem makes its way to the Crimean Tatar communities themselves. So these initiative groups that I mentioned that are meeting regularly to petition authorities that are strategizing ways that their movement can grow, they start the meetings by reading this poem. They read as well their own Ant et Kendmen, their their national hymn by Noman Chelebi Jihan. And they follow it up with Chichibobin's uh, Crimean strolls. And they they write about crying, hearing the words of this poem, because it, it, it was a recognition that someone else saw this plight, was shocked by what it meant about Soviet society, and rallied consciences uh, of readers across the Soviet Union, or at least sought to rally the conscience of Soviet readers to their defense. And we see a lot of cases of people indeed responding and acting once they received and heard this poem. And Mustafa Jamilev, um, the leader of the Crimean Tatar people spoke to me very eloquently in great detail about how important these texts were to Crimean Tatars themselves, how it actually comforted them, but also how these were instruments that they could distribute into their own networks um, to mobilize readers in their defense, and we have KGB documents showing that people were indeed, that the KGB voices were indeed concerned about the circulation of these texts because they were having a demonstrable effect on on readers.
0: Wow. Well, uh, there's a lot more to learn in the book uh, about the way in which the um, Crimean, Tatar, and Ukrainian dissident movements intersect. And there's also a fascinating discussion that maybe is of less concern for listeners of a channel on Ukrainian studies, but it's important all the same about the way in which the Crimean-Tatar cause is in fact acknowledged and plight and suffering is acknowledged and written about within the Republic of Turkey. So I encourage listeners to go seek out that information and learn more. But I'd like to jump to more recent um, events. Uh, You have this interesting phrase um, in which you posit that Crimea after 1991 did not have a Crimean Tatar problem, but a festering post-colonial problem. What do you mean by this?
1: Right. If one thinks about uh, scholarship, analytical scholarship, scholarship in international relations and political science about Crimea since 1991, there was a conventional portrayal of this inter-ethnic contest and contestation between Russians, Ukrainians, and Crimean Tatars. And there was a kind of multi-vector negotiation between these groups. And that multi-vector interaction would determine the political fate of the peninsula within independent sovereign Ukraine. Rarely in this research does one see the word colonialism and certainly not decolonization. Rarely anything like post-colonialism and I think this is a major failing in our field that we didn't speak clearly enough in the 1990s and then afterwards that so much of what we called in the 90s post-Soviet space, and I, I actually despise the term in, in our current moment in 2023. As, don't think as it's, do I, as do yeah, I, yeah. Don't think it's, it's at all relevant and it's constantly used. But nonetheless, we can use it in the context of the 1990s, we as a community of scholars did not apply the colonial frame enough. And I think it was very naive of us to not recognize that the Soviet empire indeed was an empire. Um, I think now when we think about Putin reflecting upon the dissolution of the the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, we now understand that what he meant was not the defeat of global communism, it was the loss of empire. So we needed to bring colonialism and imperialism to the conversation, but it didn't happen and, and so the case of Crimea is just one microcosmic instance of it. So what we often see as a reference to Crimean Tatars is in fact, I think, unfair to them. That is, we needed to be talking about the, the difficulties of decolonizing Crimea. And if we had been using that term, I think we would have been bringing in other instances from other settler colonialist um, legacies of the past and the ways in which we try to resolve or at least confront them. I mean, truth and reconciliation commissions, electoral quotas, these kinds of things are proven in helping communities overcome the legacy of settler colonialism. But because we weren't even using the terms empire or colonialism, we didn't think to apply them uh, to this situation. So as a result, the Crimean Tatars, I think, and Ukrainians, in the case of Crimea, get left out of the picture. That is, there's not enough discussion about the the, the trauma that they've experienced. There's not a, uh, as much discussion about why there are so many Russians on the peninsula, that in fact, it was tens of thousands of Russians and some Ukrainians who were brought in to replace the Crimean Tatars after 1944. That was an ongoing process. So when we talk about Crimea's demography, we can't we can't speak of it without talking about settler colonialism, yet that's what we did. And so that's what I mean by this reframing of a what was often called a Crimean Tatar problem to a post-colonial problem that we just never acknowledged.
0: Right. And as you emphasize in the book, I mean, uh, the literature that is produced largely by Russian language authors in Crimea does not dwell on this fact at all, and I, I just find it remarkable as somebody who's long been interested in Crimean issues that we didn't as scholars, frankly listen to Crimean Tatars more who have long emphasized you know their indigeneity and have made uh, explicit comparisons between the suffering of their own people and that of de- other indigenous people around the world so it, it was there to pick up on most certainly uh and uh, and study with greater rigor but the field absolutely <laughs> i mean others have tried but uh, but uh, your book is exceptional in this respect so uh i really um uh, absolutely fascinated by your discussion of this uh i could talk all day but uh, i've taken up a lot of your valuable time. Do you mind if I ask you one last question about? No, um, no,
1: man. No, thank you for your time.
0: Yeah, um, oh, but such a such an honor. Well, so you end your study. Uh, I, I quote you often back to you, um, just because I find your wordsmithing uh, so fantastic too. Uh, but uh, it also, in many ways, encapsulates um, for me your argument and the, or the way uh, and, and offers me an instructive way to think about the way in which you you frame your study so um you end with this provocative statement that i think deserves to be strongly underscored um especially now uh ukraine may have lost control of crimea for the foreseeable future but at least in one sense crimea has not lost control of ukraine so how do we find this notion in post 2014 ukrainian and crimean tatar literature and how are we still dealing with your descriptive statement here? How, how would you like to, in any way, you've, you've certainly been out there and and bravely uh, so um, offering uh, strong arguments about uh, the way in which uh, most certainly Crimea is Ukraine and uh, reminding the world that they should not forget this. But I wonder if you might offer, a literary gloss um, on more recent events um, that is in particular Ukraine's attempts to take back Crimea, Ukraine's current attacks on the Russian occupiers of Crimea. So how do we find this notion in literature since annexation and maybe some commentary on the immediate present?
1: Thanks for that question, Matt, because I think there's so much that Crimean-Tatar and Ukrainian solidarity can teach us about, about the future of Europe, about global Islam as well, because when we take a step back and recognize that right now the Crimean-Tatar community is helping drive Ukraine's sense of itself in accordance with a civic national identity, an identity that is not about ethnicity, it's not about language, it's about a sense of belonging so that a Sunni Muslim national minority can really inflect the national project of the largest country within the European continent. It's quite a remarkable thing. Now, it's not to romanticize it either, it's imperfect. I mentioned earlier, these currents of cultural memory that still persists. There's a lot still that needs to be done. And and of course, we need to recognize that Kremlin propaganda is often interested in divide et impera, to divide and conquer uh, means, in, in fact, creating narratives and telling stories that divide Ukrainians from Crimean Tatars. Uh, that's been an objective that uh, the Kremlin has been invested in for a very long time. And as I argue, Russian culture as a whole has been invested in for even longer. So um, there's a lot there to talk about. But uh, the positive story here is that if we look at Ukrainian cultural reflections about Crimea and Crimean Tatars since 2014, and then if we look at Crimean Tatar cultural reflections about Ukraine, what we see is a really stunning picture, in my opinion. That is, there's a confrontation with this pass of loss, of disconnect, of a home that moves away from you, even though you stay still. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of language, the kind of imagery that can sustain communities for a very long time in processing their own emotional trauma to the horrors that confront them every day. So initially, uh, after 1981, what we saw between Crimean Tatars and Ukrainians was uh, an exploration of an encounter, a historical encounter, in in fact. And so much of the literature is about looking beyond the imperial frame back into the 17th century, when Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars were historical allies. We should not forget that Ukrainian Tatars are hugely instrumental in helping the uh, Ukrainian Cossacks defeat the Polish king. One could argue that without the Crimean Tatars, modern Ukraine would not be possible in the form that we know it now. So there's a lot of, after 91, a lot of exploration of this idea of encounter. But then after 2014, it becomes more of an entanglement discourse that Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars are entangled together A lot of these cultural reflection involves understanding uh, those intersections, divergences, convergences. And that uh, that has evolved, as I explained in the book, into a discourse of enclosure, that uh, so many Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars reflect upon this poetics of home, of of writing about what it means to be at home uh, in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense as well. So one of the great examples I think we could focus on is just one instance of this, is the collection that is now annually published by, um, uh, by the, by the uh, publishing house, um, Stary uh, mm-hmm. called Krimsky Injir or, um, uh, Krim uh, Injir, um, the Crimean fig, which is a, a volume that puts together lots of literature about Crimea in the Ukrainian and Crimean Tatar languages, and often features Uh, Crimean-Tatar language translations of Ukrainian works and Ukrainian language translation of Crimean-Tatar works. It's this textual space in which Crimea exists free of Russian control. This is a volume that has grown over the years under the leadership of um, uh, Ali Maliev and his colleagues and, and a wonderful team. And I encourage all readers to, to go out and, and look for that, uh, look for those volumes. There have been four of them, if I'm not mistaken, since. So this is a, a volume that speaks to this common discourse about enclosure, this exploration of what it means to be at home together in particular. And I think that's where we stand now, that after 2022, after February 24th, there is a, a really keen sense of a Common trauma, and I don't mean to 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 conflate and erase the differences between these groups and what they've had to experience over the over the centuries. But um, there is a keen sense of what it means to be dislocated from one's home, to have it under threat, um, to to confront hardship, evil doing, to put it that way, um, and to. Resolve to work together to overcome it. And that is so much of what Ukrainian and Crimean Tatar um, writers, artists, intellectuals, filmmakers are engaged in right now. As much as we're contending with day-to-day horrors, there's this positive story that we need to focus on because I think it can really showcase a future for Ukraine that's firmly leading Europe in a manifestation of the sense of what Europe really means. And that's an exciting thing to think about. Now, as far as the question of Crimea in Ukraine, in a free Crimea, in a free Ukraine, it is really important for us to put aside the myths, to reflect upon the legacy of 1954. Um, this notion that somehow Khrushchev was mistaken or drunk or overly generous in transferring Crimea to Ukraine um, that's all nonsense because what we see, particularly from Khrushchev's own reflection, Uh, On this period, particularly after 1953, is that Crimea was in a terrible economic uh, state and needed um, attention. Soviet Russia was not giving it that attention. But because Crimea is an extension of the Ukrainian mainland, it made perfect administrative and logistical sense for Crimea to be handed over to those administrators. And sure enough, once it was done, um, Crimea flourished economically. So the story of Crimea becoming the Shangri La in the Soviet period has everything to do with the Ukrainian success in making it so. Um, So these are the kinds of things we need to remember, alongside this wonderful cultural story. Which again, I don't mean to overly romanticize it, but I do find it uh, very powerful, and even more powerful when we consider how overlooked it is.
0: Absolutely, and I look forward to reading more literature uh, of this exchange between Ukrainians and Crimean Tatars, who are, in fact, Ukrainians as well. So I don't mean to reduce things just to ethnic categories. They're all there's, citizens. That, there's that entanglement. There's that entanglement again, right. Matt. Yeah. yeah, all citizens of... Of, uh, of Ukraine. Well, Rory, it's simply a wonderful book. Uh, I want to thank you for being here with me today. It was a great, great privilege. I, I'm sad <laughs> that our conversations are too infrequent. So I look forward Likewise. to seeing
1: you again soon. But anyhow, Thanks, man. take care, my friend. Thank you for your time. Thanks for all that you do.